Bid you a very pleasant good evening. If you have a bookmark in your Bible, uh, if you'll open to Hebrews chapter 3, put your bookmark there. Uh, that's where we're going to spend most of our time. And then uh, if you want to turn over to Genesis 4, that's where I'm going to begin. So uh, we'll study from Hebrews 3, but uh, flip over to Genesis chapter 4, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll get started in a moment. Uh, it's good to see you this evening. I appreciate uh, your being here. I appreciate all your kind uh, comments and remarks. Uh, I, I, I must tell you, there's a couple of things that makes preaching much easier. Uh, one of them is good singing, and y'all have excellent song leaders and uh, participants here, and so I appreciate the, the good singing, even when the PowerPoint uh, doesn't always go just right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to make another comment about that. But, but I'll tell you, the other thing uh, is you listen well, and uh, it, it's obvious that you're interested and uh, when, when you're preaching and you don't have to spend half your time trying to get people's attention, boy, that, that just really helps. And uh, that is a, a great compliment that you pay to the speaker. So I, I, I'm very appreciative of that and all the kind things that you've had to say. I, I really hope that our uh, efforts through the week have been profitable to you, and I appreciate uh, uh, getting to be here with you. Um, I, I got tickled. Uh, PowerPoints become so commonplace uh, anymore. That, that you almost wonder how, how we got along without it. And uh, I don't use it very much. I, I use it when I teach class. Uh, w- once in a while, I use it when I'm preaching. Uh, but a couple of times lately, I've been places where uh, there's been a glitch. You know, either the guy got up to preach and uh, the PowerPoint didn't load up and, and everybody just kind of freezes or like the song service... Uh, you know, we just stopped, dead stopped in the middle of the song, and nobody kept going. And uh, I have a little bit of irreverence about me, and uh, every time that happens, every time it happens, what goes through my mind, <laughs> and forgive me, I hope this doesn't offend you, I can just see the Lord standing up on a mountainside next to a big cliff and, and starting the lesson and the PowerPoint messing up, and looking over at the apostles and go, I gave you power to raise the dead, I gave you power to, th- to cast out demons, and you can't get the stinking PowerPoint going? Now, I don't know why that's what goes through my mind, but every time that's what goes through my mind. So give me a minute because I'm still tickled. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting things that entertain us in our own heads, isn't it? So... Genesis chapter 4 reads, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. And she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. The Lord had respect to Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. 
Am I my brother's keeper? This is one of the stories in the Bible that has uh, a number of applications, and uh, it's really not my purpose to, to do a lesson on Cain and Abel, uh, as much as it is to, to point out uh, that there's a, obviously a dynamic going on between these two brothers that we don't know very much about. We, we don't know how old they are. We don't know how much they were separated in age. Uh, you, you, you read a story like this, and, and you think, what in the world could have could have been their relationship that one brother becomes so upset over the other brother's acceptability to God that he would actually kill him. I mean, I've got a younger sister. She is a wonderful person. And I was kidding the other day when I was talking about, uh, well, I was kind of kidding. Uh, she's always been a, a really good person. I remember from the time she was a kid, she just didn't do very much wrong. And, and uh, and, and, and there were times when it drove me crazy that, uh, that she never did anything wrong and I was in trouble all the time. But I must tell you, there have been times when I've been upset with her. It's never crossed my mind to kill her. Uh, I have thought about that with regards to my kids a time or two. But it, it's never crossed my mind that, that I've gotten so upset with my sister that I would kill her. And, and I want you to consider that Whatever is going on here seems to reflect the likelihood, anyway, in my mind, that there's, that there's a lot more to this relationship between Cain and Abel than, than God tells us about. And one of the, one of the uh, I wouldn't say frustrations, but maybe curiosities about studying the Bible is, is that when God tells us things, He's telling us things with a purpose. Because those things fit into the scheme of God's redemption for mankind. And he leaves a lot of things out that we are curious about. It doesn't surprise me necessarily that Paul tells Timothy to, go, to stay at Ephesus and to beware of all the fables and endless genealogies. It's easy for us to fill in the blanks and make up stories. And I've got it in my mind that, that, that Cain just didn't like Abel and, and, and had, had the roles been reversed... And, and Cain was accepted by God, uh, and Abel was the one that was rejected, that Abel it w was the kind of guy that he was going to be supportive to his brother, uh, and, 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 and Cain was just the kind of guy that nothing was going to please him. Now, I don't know if they were that way at all, <laughs> but that's kind of what I got in my mind. And I think the reason that I've got that in my mind is because what God says about them is when God asked Cain... Do you know where Abel is? Can you imagine saying to God, I don't know, is it my job to keep up after him? I mean, just the very question itself is, is just borders on condescending. And clearly, whatever the relationship was, there was a lack of love. Would you agree with that? that Cain really didn't care very much for his brother. And maybe that's something we can ask the Lord about when we get there. That there is a, a distinction, a division, a separation, a lack of appreciation and concern and compassion and care. And, and I tell you folks, we're living in a world, in my mind, that is much more given to that than it used to be. This, this idea of being your brother's keeper. And, and, and there is a kind of a negative connotation to that, I think, in our minds. 
And I think as Americans, I think our culture very much affects the way that we approach life. As Americans, we think of ourselves as independent. We think of ourselves as, as standing on our own. We don't need anybody else. Nobody else needs us. Uh, you know, it, we're, we live in a live and let live world. And, and other cultures aren't so much that way, but, but boy, we are. And, and that has repercussions in several areas of service to God. And one of the repercussions is, is what I want to talk to you about this evening. Living in a culture that encourages us to be independent and look out for ourselves and not depend upon other people hurts our relationship with other Christians. It, it is detrimental to the local church. Uh, and, and I must tell you that this is something I struggle with personally. Uh, you remember the old Batman? Well, I say old Batman. Now there's a bunch of Batman movies, but the old Batman TV shows. And uh, you never saw Batman until the light went on over Gotham. And when the light went on, the waterfall stopped, the cave opened, the Batmobile comes out. He drives to wherever the penguin or the Catwoman is or the Joker. He beats him up. He jumps back in his car, drives back in. The doors close. The waterfall starts again. The leaves blow, and you never see him again until the next time the light comes on. My dad used to joke about this. He said, you know, sometimes I think the street I live on is just a big series of bat caves. Six o'clock in the morning, the garage doors open, everybody backs out, they go zooming off to work. Five o'clock in the evening, they come zooming back, they go in their garage, they close. He said, we never talk to our neighbors anymore. And that's kind of interesting to me, because that's the way I am. Personality and service to God uh, presents for all of us our own challenges. And sometimes your challenges and my challenges aren't the same. And... What I want to talk to you about this evening is a challenge for me because I'm a bat cave guy. I, I, I'm a loner. Uh, I like to, I, I don't mind being by myself. In fact, there are some people I'd much rather be by myself than be with them. Uh, ha having this relationship with people that are very different in their background and different in their thinking, which is the beauty of the wisdom of God. In Ephesians chapter 3, when God says that, that He manifests to the principalities and powers in heavenly places the wisdom of God by looking at the church, what God has done, and it's very clear in the context of Ephesians 2, is He's taken all these different people with different backgrounds and different ways of thinking and different personalities He's washed us all, He's sanctified us all, He's purified us all, and He's all made us a family where we are now to be stones in a wall together. And, and, and sometimes I don't want to be a stone in a wall. I just want to be off in the field by myself. I don't necessarily like being my brother's keeper. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 3, if you would. And, and I want to spend the, the, the remainder of our time looking at an admonition that the Hebrew writer, I, I think was probably Paul, uh, an admonition that he makes to these people. And, and I want you to appreciate, you probably do, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but if you don't, I want you to appreciate what's happening in this letter. Uh, clearly the argumentation of the letter is that... Uh, 
What's offered to us in Christ, and I think especially with Christ as our high priest seems to be the real focus, but what's offered to us by Christ in Christianity is much greater than what was offered under the law of Moses in the old law. And these Christians are former Jews, not only in their nationality, but in their religious convictions. And whatever's happening to them in their life, my suspicion is... While they're not being physically persecuted, they are being ostracized. They are being shut out of society. They are, they are uh, experiencing tremendous pressure to leave Christianity and go back and, 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 and enter the, the, the world of Judaism again. That seems fairly clear. And so the entire letter is intended to, to, to dissuade them from returning, to encourage them in regards to their faith, uh, and, and to give them a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to go back to Judaism. And, and in the midst of this argument where he talks about this, this aspect is better, this aspect is better, the sacrifice is better, the priesthood is better, the, uh, the covenant is better. When you, when you get to, to chapter 3, he, he makes the argument that essentially the family is better. That uh, under the law of Moses, we were like uh, servants in, in, in the family of God. But as children of God, as, as Christians, we are now family. We're, we're part of the household of God. Uh, because our Savior was not just a servant in God's house, but Christ was the Son of God, is the Son of God, and we are children of God. And that's the immediate context. And, it, and, and as he talks about this, in verse 12 of chapter 3, and we're just going to look at two verses, and I'm really just going to make two points. The writer says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Let me suggest to you that the point of the lesson is that uh, we have to, to some degree, be our brother's keepers. And that raises some uncomfortable circumstances for us. Uh, it, whether you're one of these people like me that you're, you're just your, by personality, you're, you're not necessarily a big people person, or, or whether it's one of those deals where you just don't necessarily want to be a part of somebody else's life. Maybe, maybe they struggle and you feel like you're just constantly having to help them up. Maybe you don't want anybody else to know what your struggles are. For whatever the reason... I think sometimes this idea of looking out for one another is a challenge. And yet, that's the admonition here. The, the, the first point is what he says in verse 12, and, and that is, the. and I'm reading from the New King James Version, it is to beware uh, the, the old King James. And I like the old King James translation here. The old King James used the phrase, take heed. Which is not a phrase we use very often. Of course, we don't say beware very often either. But what I want you to appreciate is that the concept here implies the need for attention. The, the, the Greek word really is the same Greek word that is translated to see. And, and what the, the writer is saying to this group of Christians who are struggling, they're struggling with their confidence in God, they're, they're being dissuaded from being faithful, and, and what he's telling them is, I, you need to open your eyes. You need to be alert. You need to be attentive. Um, any of you guys deer hunt? I shouldn't say guys. That's, that's kind of sexist, isn't it? 
Any of you folks deer hunt? Because my girls all hunt. So, uh, do you know somebody that deer hunts and never sees anything? Uh, I, I'm not asking for you to point them out, okay? <laughs> this is about helping brethren, okay? <laughs> At the end of the lesson, we're going to have a fight. Uh, I used to hunt on a piece of property that, that, that had two fence lines. It wasn't a big piece of property, and there were, there were two deer stands, both on a hill overlooking a, a gully, and both stands are looking down the same fence line. You really couldn't see the other stand, but you're looking at the same, at, at, at the same fence line. And, and, and I used to hunt with this guy, and we'd come in after the morning hunt and say, well, did, did, did you see anything behind you? Well, you rarely ever in either stand saw anything behind you. Uh, you were hunting a crossing. And, yeah, did you see that little button buck? Yeah, did you see that little spike? Yeah, did, did, did you see the doe? Well, I hunted this one guy, and he never saw anything. <laughs> and we're looking at the same thing. Uh, did, did you see that? No, no. I, well, it was about eight. No, I, I never saw a thing. Well, I finally snuck out of the stand one day, crept through the woods at the danger of being shot, but he couldn't see a deer. I knew he wasn't going to see me. <laughs> snuck around through the woods and crept up behind the stand, and he's sitting in the stand dead asleep. Now, now I'm going to tell you something, folks. It's, it's hard to be wary <laughs> when you're sleeping. And I'm going to tell you, I, I think part of the challenge that God offers to His people in, in a number of ways is the idea of not, be, not being asleep, of, of being attentive, of, of watching out. Uh, you see it in 1 Peter chapter 5 with regards to, to Satan. Our adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. And, and the admonition there is to be sober and vigilant. The idea of vigilant is to be watchful. Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you see the same concept uh, when Paul's talking about the second coming of Christ and the fact that while we don't know the times and the seasons, we are people who are children of light, children of day, we're not as those who sleep who are going to be caught unawares. We're watching. I want you to appreciate that the admonition here tells us as children of God that we have the responsibility to be watching. And if you look at the passage carefully, he addresses it specifically to brethren. To brethren with regards to individuals. Now, I recognize that you can read this verse in a couple of ways. You can read it, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you. In other words, all of us as brethren need to be looking at ourselves. That's one way to understand it. But I'm convinced as you read the context and as you look at the entirety of the book and you look at the admonitions in Hebrews, he's not saying every one of us needs to be watching for ourselves. He's saying every one of us needs to be watching for each other. And part of the reason I believe that is because in the very next verse, we're to exhort one another. So, so I, I want to put in, into your mind that this is a one another passage. Does it make you comfortable that God expects everybody in this congregation to be watching you? Does it make you comfortable that God expects you to be watching everyone else? To be looking out for each other? 
And, 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 and I think that's part of it. I think our privacy sometimes uh, uh, pushes back at these kinds of considerations. But, but, but let me tell you something, folks. Uh, this is what a local congregation is about. If I were to ask some of the older heads in here, what, please define the work of the local church. And then the reason I say the older heads is because if, if you grew up like I did, hearing lots of lessons on authority and the work of the local church, because of the institutional divisions that were going on when I was a child, you heard a lot of lessons about what a local congregation is supposed to be doing. And without fail, the answer is, well, the responsibility of a local congregation is threefold. It is evangelism, benevolence, and edification. And, and those things are true. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that, but I will offer this qualification. Most evangelism is personal. You know, collectively, as a group, the way that we evangelize is, is either by supporting someone who's preaching or by, as a group, having a special effort to teach the lost, which is what gospel meetings are. This is an evangelistic effort that we're engaged in this week. But for the most part, teaching the gospel is an individual thing. Uh, you, you know, Jacob's not your designated hitter. <laughs> you, you didn't hire him to go do your personal work for you. This is a responsibility that we all have as lights of the world and the salt of the earth. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, th those that were scattered went everywhere preaching. The only people that weren't scattered were the apostles. The reality is that's our job as individuals. And I would say the same thing predominantly about the concept of benevolence. I, I do believe that the collection that you see uh, addressed in 1 Corinthians 16 or 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 was predominantly for benevolence in order to take care of needy saints, whether it was those in Judea in Acts chapter 11 or once again as Paul is appealing to the Gentile world uh, for those same brethren uh, as you see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 or 1 Corinthians 16. But most benevolence is you and I <laughs> helping somebody that's hungry or writing a check to Christians that have been flooded and while we do some of that collectively, most of it is individual. But I'm going to tell you something about the concept of edification, which is building up. This is something that takes a group. This is something that all of us together are responsible for doing. In fact, I would propose to you that the fundamental work of a local congregation is the support of all the individuals within that congregation. And if you read Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 where he talks about the church as a body and you have eyes and ears and feet and hands and that, that we all contribute or even more so turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 uh, and listen to what Paul says to this group of Christians uh, about their responsibilities to one another. Ephesians 4 and verse 11 He gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, to, to, to arm us all so that we can serve, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. You know what that says to every one of us? 
And I don't care if you're man or woman. I don't care if you're old or young. I've tried to, I've tried to get my children to see this. And it's hard as a parent to get your kids to see this. And, and you, you younger people that are probably at the age where you've obeyed the gospel, you need to see it. And you college students that are going to go off and, and, and you're going to go worship somewhere, you need to understand that this is an obligation you're going to have wherever you worship. Your job and my job is to help everybody else in my local congregation be like Jesus. And whatever gifts God has given me to do that, I am to use. You read Romans chapter 12, that is exactly the point that Paul makes there. And, and that's, that's what he says to these Ephesian brethren. God gave people the ability to teach so that the, the saints will be equipped to serve one another, to build each other up so that we all become like Jesus. And, and, and part of that demands that you and I have to be watching for one another. How does that make you feel? Do you do that? Do you know who's not here this evening? Do you know why? Are you going to do anything about that? Those that are here this evening, are, are you aware of what they're dealing with in their lives? Do, do you know them at all? Do you bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ? Uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. I mean, this is an admonition that you find all over. We're told the same thing in Philippians chapter 2, that we're to look out for one another, to not be paying attention to ourselves, but paying attention to each other. We're going to come back to Hebrews chapter 10 later on in the lesson where, where, where the, the writer's going to again tell the same group of people uh, not to forsake the assembling of one another, but to consider one another, to pay attention to one another, to stir up love and good works. And I'm convinced one of the, the frustrations of local congregational work is that we don't all come together with the intent that I'm here to help you and you're here to help me. Now, now if somebody said, is that what we're supposed to be doing? We'd say yes. But when you say, well, why are we assembling? Well, we're assembling to worship God. We're offering praises to God. Yes, we are. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. God doesn't need our worship. It doesn't make Him more God. Our offering of praise to Him does not in some way glorify Him beyond what He would be glorified otherwise. He told the children of Israel in one of the Psalms, Look, I don't need your sacrifices. All the cattle and all the hills and all the earth are mine. If, if I wanted something to eat, I could do that. Worship is for us. It's an opportunity for us to be together to consider one another. And that's what the Hebrew writer says if you go back to chapter 3. Brethren, everybody... Beware, lest there be in any of you, what? A failure of faith. An evil heart, he says in verse 12, of unbelief. And this is an interesting phrase to me as well, because we don't consider evil being simply a lack of trust in God. We consider evil, if I were to ask you to define it, my, my guess would be, well, evil, an evil man is a, a murderer, a, a rapist, uh, someone who takes advantage of others, someone who is just almost demonic. Jeffrey Dahmer. He kills them, he eats them, he's just evil, he's just evil incarnate. You know what we're supposed to be watching for in each other? Evil. But the evil here is a mind that has lost its trust in God. 
Back up in the context and, and listen to, to, the, to the reason he says this the way he does. Uh, back in verse 5 and 6, uh, he, he talks about Moses being faithful in all of his house as a servant for a testimony of those that would be spoken of after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house? And he's using house in the sense of family. Whose family we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now that's the, that's the problem. There is the danger you're going to lose your confidence in Jesus and go back to Judaism. So, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and proved me and saw my works 40 years. I was angry with that generation. I said, they do always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath, they will not enter into my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Now, it's hard for me to fathom the children of Israel in the wilderness who every day except Saturday, every day for 40 years, would get up and go collect manna. Every day the pillar of clouds stood above the tabernacle in the middle of all their tents. You go back and you read, they, their, their tents circled the tabernacle of God. You get up, you walk out, what's the first thing you see every day? There's that, there's that tower of clouds. Or if at night, there's this pillar of fire. Every day, they, they, they saw the presence of God. Every day, God fed them. They saw things that I can't even imagine. And yet, when God leads them to the promised land and says, go up there and take that city, <laughs> they go, man, those, are, those guys are bigger than we are, and there's a big wall around those cities, and we're like grasshoppers, and the land eats everybody up, and there's no way we can beat them. Well, there's no way you could have lived out in the wilderness for 40 years either, but you did. And it's, it's hard for me to fathom people that had that kind of evidence that quit trusting God until I look around and realize that no matter what happens in my life, no matter what the tragedy is, Jesus still died on a cross for me. Jesus still rose from the dead for me. Jesus still sits at the right hand of God, interceding for me. Every day, He listens to every prayer I utter to Him. He, he provides every time I am attempted a way of escape. Every day, Jesus is working to secure my salvation. No matter what happens, no matter if I get cancer, no matter if something, somebody dies that's close to me, no matter what the tragedy is, nothing changes the love of Christ. That's the point that's made in Romans chapter 8. Why would I not trust Him? And to fail to do so is evil. Now I'm going to ask you something. Have you ever seen anybody in this group that quit trusting God? They started losing their faith? That's not a rhetorical question. Have you seen this happen? Shake your head, yes. You may not have been paying attention. Somebody... All of a sudden, you don't see them on a Wednesday night or maybe a Bible class or what used to be Sunday night services. And, and, and then the next thing you know, you've missed them for several weeks. And, and the next thing you know, you hear that they're doing this or they're doing that or they've left their spouse or they're off over here engaged in some kind of activity or they've committed some kind of crime. And, and you look around and go, what, how did that happen to that person? They seem so faithful. They seem so happy. 
Well, I tell you, part of the way that it happened is they lost their trust in God because of circumstances in their life, and you weren't watching for them. And that's our job. Because what happens when people start losing their trust in God is, as he says in verse 12, they depart from the living God. You know, I've heard people say, you know, this terrible thing has happened to me. I just don't understand where God is. God is right where He always was. When there is a separation between us and God, it's because we leave, folks. And what our responsibility as brethren is, is to watch out for each other so that nobody is so overwhelmed by the circumstances of their life that they quit trusting God. Now, are you doing that, you young people? Are y'all doing that for one another? Are you doing it for the older folks? Older folks, are you doing it for these kids? Are you doing it for your elders? Elders, are you doing it for the rest of the church? Don't just show up and sit through a sermon and sing a few songs and take your little piece of cracker and juice and walk off and think, I've worshipped God. We've got a job here. Well, that's point one. Look at the next verse, and the last point is, we're supposed to watch out for one another, and we're supposed to exhort one another. The word exhort uh, is an interesting word. Uh, It means to admonish, or, or more literally, to encourage in a particular course of activity. Um... It's not a negative term, <laughs> and, and I've seen this. We were kind of talking about uh, at lunch today attitudes that we've seen in our lives, those of us that grew up among Christians, and, and, and I've seen this happen. You've probably seen this happen. Somebody, somebody gets a little off-center. Somebody gets an idea that maybe they haven't thought through well. Somebody's enamored by some teaching. Somebody uh, slips up in regards to their, to their moral life, and they get involved in something they shouldn't. And, and it just seems like for a long time our, our, our immediate response is to go to their house and grab them, pull them up by their shirt collar, take your little thin pink Bible, pop them across the face a time or two and tell them, if you don't straighten up, you're going straight to hell. Well, I, there's a time to tell people, if you don't straighten up, you're going to lose yourself. There's a time to pull them out of the fire. But there's also a time to encourage them, to urge them out, to exhort, which is what the word literally means. To to, to encourage them in the course that they're supposed to pursue. Hebrews chapter 11 says, I mean Galatians chapter 6 says that we're supposed to do this in the spirit of meekness considering ourselves lest we're also tempted because we all have to deal with this kind of stuff from time to time. And, and, and the admonition that is made says that those of us who are God's people are supposed to be doing that for one another. If you go to Hebrews 10, I told you a while ago we'd come back to this. It's a shame that we don't use this passage to, to underscore what's really being underscored. Preachers love this passage because it tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Uh, you know, if you're not coming to services on Sunday and Wednesday and Sunday night and any other time, then, then you're sinning. Well, you know, this, this, this little section right here is about much more than that. In fact, that's kind of the undercurrent 
to the real admonition. The real admonition is in uh, verse 19. This is the conclusion of the whole letter. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest, that is, into the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus, which they couldn't do under the old law, by a new and living way which Jesus consecrated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of trust, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He is faithful who has promised. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now I'm going to ask you to do something as a result of this study. And it's going to require a lot of discipline on your part. But I think it's our responsibility. When you come together as a church, I would like to encourage you to start looking at one another and paying attention to one another so closely that, that you can tell if there's a problem. Are you that close to one another? You know, I can, I can walk home and I can tell if something's happened when one of my girls are with Tracy. With my closest friends that I can tell, I can just, we can walk into Waterburger. Mark Banks and I can walk into Waterburger and I can look at his face and tell uh, if, if it's been his day in the barrel. I, a bad day to us is like the rodeo clown gets in the barrel and the, the bull kicks him all over the arena. And so that's our little, uh, how are you? Man, oh, man, I've been in the barrel all day today. And I can tell by looking at him. Do you know the people in this congregation well enough that when you walk in, you can consider one another? Are you paying that close of attention to each other? And, and, and if that is the case, your job is to stir up what gets deadened and weakened and, and, and cheapened by life and by circumstance. Stir up in one another the, the kind of affection that we are to have, the, the kind of devotion to God, the kind of good works we are to be doing. That's why we're not supposed to forsake the assembling. Because if you're not here, you can't stir anybody up. If you go back to chapter 3, you can't exhort one another. Because I'm going to tell you folks, none of us are going to make it to heaven without somebody pushing us along every now and then. And, and let me offer this observation about the converse of that. Sometimes you're on the receiving end of that. Sometimes somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I've missed you at services. Is everything okay? And we don't want anybody to know that we're struggling. We don't want anybody to know that we're dealing with a problem. We don't want anybody to know what's happening in our lives. And we either say, yeah, everything's fine. Or... We just walk away with the mentality, that's just none of your business now, is it? And I'm going to tell you, as, as leaders in a congregation, the elders see it, I think, probably more than they would ever admit to you. Preachers see it fairly regularly. Deacons, I think, if they're doing their job, especially in certain things that they've been assigned to do, they see this. Sometimes people just don't want your help. And if you're one of those Christians that don't want anybody else meddling in your business and you don't want them talking to you and you don't want them coming to you and you don't want them asking about you, well, shame on you. Because that's our job for one another. Go back to verse 13 and look at it again. 
but exhort one another. And you do it all the time, daily, while it's called today. Don't procrastinate. I'm going to tell you what I've seen happen, and you have too. Somebody doesn't show up, and they don't show up, and they don't show up, and you tell yourself, I need to call them, I need to go see them, I need to check on them. I know this has happened, I know that's happened, I know they've had financial problems, I know they've had problems with one of the kids. I'm aware of some of the things, and I'm missing them, and I really need to go see them. And, and you put it off, and you put it off, and you put it off, and, and it's a month. And then when you do go see them, by that point, they don't think anybody cares about them. Or they've gotten so involved in whatever the sin is that it's harder for them to get out. Notice that that's exactly what the Hebrew writer says when he talks about exhorting one another daily while it is today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Satan's good, we talked about this already, at deceiving us and making us think that, yeah, I need to, I need to work on my business more, I need to work on this more, I need to give up the Lord for this, that, or the other. And by the time loving brethren come around if we put it off too long, they're so entranced in that, so engrossed in it, that they don't care anymore. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is the question that Cain, in his kind of, in my mind, obnoxious mentality, asked God, <laughs> am I my brother's keeper? You know what God's answer to him was? Yeah, you sure are. You sure are. And his blood's crying out from the ground. Because he operated by faith and you didn't like it. Sin's been after you. You need to be aware of it. You need to be cautious about it. I've warned you before, and here we are now. And that's our job in this church. And that's, that's my job at, at Northwest in Beaumont, Texas. And I know that goes against our grain sometimes. It goes against our personality sometimes. It, go, it goes against our mentality and our culture as Americans. We... Let me say this in closing. You know what the difference is in nosiness and watching out for one another to exhort one another? You know what the difference is? It's attitude. Because I can almost guarantee you somebody in this audience is probably thinking, ah, listen, I'm not going to have nosing into my business. Well, you go read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 sometime where Paul says essentially that the driving force in everything we do needs to be love. Love is, is kind. Love is long-suffering. Love is forbearing. Love is patient. Love is all these things. If I know somebody loves me and they come to me and say, I'm worried about you, while it may irritate me a little bit because I know they love me, I'm willing to listen to what they've got to say. Do you love each other enough that you can go to each other and fulfill the command these are commands in Hebrews chapter 3 to watch out for each other, to exhort each other daily without procrastination so nobody departs from, the God, from God because they've lost their trust and they've become hardened in their heart. It's a tough job, folks. It's a whole lot easier to show up, sing our songs, say our prayers, say hi to each other, how you doing, meaning it or not. 
and go on about our business. But souls will be lost if local churches don't do their job. So I want to encourage you. Get out of the back cave. Be involved with each other, hard as it may be. Use the talents God has given you. And help each other go to heaven. Such is our job. Such is our blessing to be a part of such a family. Thank you for your attention. If you're subject to the invitation tonight, if you need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and we can help you, we invite your response while together we stand and while we sing.